And we'll be returning this morning to the Gospel of Matthew, looking at Matthew chapter 14, verses 13 through 21. It's interesting to reflect on the significance of food in human culture. And though we tend to take the availability for food for granted in our particular uh, life setting, as Christians we do well to think not just about its physical availability, but the spiritual significance of food. From the beginning of Scripture, we're encouraged to, to consider the food we eat as a physical manifestation of God's care for us, of his care for us as a creator. In Genesis 1.29, God says to the human beings he has created, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. So as he's given life to these creatures in his image, he has given them food to sustain that life. Later in redemptive history, after the human race is preserved through the flood and uh, saving of Noah and his family, explicit provision of living creatures as food is indicated, just with one restriction. Uh, God says to Noah and his family, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything, but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. So God has provided a wonderful array of food for his people. Now to go back to creation account, it's interesting that uh, Yahweh, God, the creator, reveals himself as a gardener who's providing food for his creatures. Out of the ground, the Lord God caused, made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You probably noticed, as I read that, that in fact, the test given to Adam as the representative head of the human race centers on an act of eating. The trees God has planted in his garden are described there. In effect, this is his temple where he has communion with his, his creatures, his, the human beings. The trees of the garden are beautiful and good for food, we're told. God has provided for mankind all that is necessary for life, even attractive and delicious food. And the man that he created would demonstrate his love and loyalty to the one who had made him and given him all these things by refraining from eating from one particular fruit, one particular tree out of all that host of trees in the garden. Now, you know that, uh, that he failed the test. Because we read in Genesis 3, 6, the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one's, one wise. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. The woman and the man ate, and instead of that producing life, as food was intended to do, it produced death. In the knowing and flagrant disobedience 
of that representative of the human race, Adam, the act of eating was a defiant rejection of the one who had provided human beings with life and food. It was a meal that brought misery, a consuming that called down a curse, an eating that ended with expulsion from Eden into a world where the human race would know the horror of hunger. Isn't that tragic? The words they took and ate no longer could signify the joy and satisfaction of feasting with God and with one another. Now those words they took and ate would taint the most basic of human activities so that every meal would, in a sense, be a reminder of their sin. God would have to take upon himself human flesh and drink the cup of his wrath against sin in order for the words take and eat to once again signify life. Our text today is about food and the one who provides it. Let's hear God's word to us today. Matthew chapter 14, verses 13 through 21. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place. The day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, we have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, and taking the five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. Let's put ourselves into this uh, text once again, pick up where we left off in our last uh, sermon. And notice that verse 13 actually refers back to what came before it. So we want to we briefly note that connection there. Jesus heard something and he withdrew from there. Uh, the expression by himself there obviously has in view the crowds. Apart from the crowds, the disciples are obviously with them because they're, they're sailing the boat. But this uh, term, he, when he heard, serves as a transition link here providing the reason why Jesus goes to an uninhabited place, a, a desert place, as some translations put it, or, or a wilderness. Now, if we read it chronologically as, as coming after what we saw in the first part of chapter 14, uh, grammatically, we probably have to say that it's referring back to Herod supposing that Jesus might be John the Baptist resurrected. Grammatically, that seems to be what's in view uh, in this significance, with this meaning. We'd say, well, 
Jesus is once again showing his mastery of the circumstances of his life. And perhaps the reason he's doing this is to prevent any, any premature confrontation with the authorities. We've seen him do this before. He's, he's withdrawn, for instance, just a couple of chapters before this from the, the presence of the Pharisees who have reached the point where they want to they wanna get rid of him. They want to kill him. And he's not interested in confrontation for the sake of confrontation. And even more importantly, he wants the climax of his ministry, the offering of himself as a sacrifice for sin. He wants that to come in the Father's timing and in his timing. So, so he withdraws from that place. And that could be what's happening here relative to, to Herod. But it's also possible that, that it could be a reference what, back to what is immediately preceding this, that that tragic description of the death of John the Baptist, uh, Jesus' relative, uh, someone he, he clearly admired. We saw him praising John a couple chapters before, saying that there'd been no prophet like him. He had a unique calling in the kingdom of God. And he extolled his faithfulness in proclaiming God's word. So this could be referring back to to that description of his tragic death at the hands of a, of a dictator manipulated by, by a, a wrathful woman, his wife. So it, it could be that we're to infer here that, that that's what's on Jesus' mind as he withdraws, as he wants time alone. Uh, Jesus values time alone. Uh, he values time spent in meditating on his father's word and in praying to him. We, we see him on occasion getting up when it's still dark and, and leaving when, when nobody else is awake so he can have some time alone. Uh, we see him providing time alone for his disciples when they're getting worn out and when he's probably exhausted from this endless uh, stream of people coming after them. Uh, but, but if, he's, if he's withdrawing upon reflecting upon this news of John's death, then surely this has to be a withdrawal of grief as well. Jesus grieved John's death, I believe. We see him grieving at the death of Lazarus. Uh, grief is not sinful. It is right to grieve for people that we love, that we care for. And so it's very possible that that's Part of what do, Jesus is doing here is grieving over the death of John and desires some, some time alone. At the same time, he, he has to realize, well, we know he realizes this because he will talk about it in chapter 17 of Matthew. Uh, he knows that John's death foreshadows his own death. The death of the forerunner reflects the death of the one whom he prophesied. That, that's been brought out to us in the text, even by the way it's, it's set up here. John dies, you remember, on the command of a, of a ruler who bends to peer pressure, bends to pressure from other people, even when he's reluctant to do so. And Jesus, too, will be condemned 
by a ruler who bends to pressure from other people. So we've been invited to, by the way that Matthew describes this, to see that this anticipates Jesus' own death. And, and that, too, could be a reason for him withdrawing uh, to, to, to pray to the Father, uh, to draw upon the strength of the Spirit for that terrible ordeal. It's good to withdraw sometimes. Don't let your life be so crowded that you don't have time to meditate on God's word, to turn it over in your minds, and to pray. You need that. If you're a believer, you need that. That's, that's life to you. Don't hesitate to do that. Even our Lord sought that kind of time. Well, he's not successful. <laughs> he's interrupted. And probably you from time to time, especially if you have little children, may be interrupted in time that you're trying to have for meditation and prayer. Jesus is interrupted. He, the, uh, the people uh, watch his little boat leave, and uh, the Sea of Galilee is, is sort, of, sort of down inside a valley. That's one of the, one of the geographical features that, that lends it to sudden and violent storms. It's, it's down in a hollow, very, it's below sea level even. And so it's easily possible for people on the shore uh, to see which direction a boat is going and even to follow its, its path for some distance, and so they perceive the direction he's going. And given the fact that uh, this is just a little sailing boat, they may have had to tack against the wind. You know, it takes time for Jesus and his disciples to get uh, over to this deserted place, and by the time they get there, there's already a crowd there. You know, he had every reason to be irritated, didn't he? Uh, he had every reason to be impatient with these people. Uh, they're always demanding things from him. But, of course, that isn't his response, is it? Uh, do you ever have the, have the sense that maybe, maybe God is irritated with you? Okay, that you've, you've sort of exhausted his patience? <laughs> that you've come to him so many times with this particular need? How can you come to him again? Draw comfort from this passage, because look what it says in verse 14. He sees the great crowd, thousands of people, and he has compassion on them. We don't have a strong enough word in English to convey uh, what's, what's meant here. <coughs> have, you ever, have you ever felt an emotion so strongly that you felt it physically as well? Has there, has there been something which you observed, which you saw, which you experienced that where you caught, you caught your breath in your throat, where your, the center of your chest hurt, where your abdominal muscles tightened. There's a physical thing about this word here. He was moved so deeply that it reflected itself in his, in his physical being itself. 
his, his very insides went out to these people. He had compassion on them. He loved them. This is the love of God for his people. If you're tempted to think that God is going to be impatient with you when you come to him again, don't forget he is moved with compassion. Move with compassion. And so he responds. He doesn't tell them to get lost. He doesn't leave himself. He responds and he heals their sick. He ministers to their physical need for healing. And most probably he was preaching and teaching as well. We know he did that everywhere. So he's feeding their minds before he's going to feed their bodies. So he's in the process of that, and it seems that that's gone on for some time, and, and perhaps most of the people that have uh, looked to him for some kind of healing have been taken care of. And the disciples decide they need to step in. Uh, maybe they're a little irritated with the crowd. <laughs> maybe they were anticipating some time alone with Jesus. And, and they're ready for these people to be gone. So they, they come to him, verse 15. This is a desolate place. Second time we've noticed that, by the way. Look for those little details as you're, as you're reading Scripture, trying to understand it. You know, there's a lot that Scripture doesn't tell us. Uh, so when it includes a detail like that, notice that. That's going to be significant. This is a desolate place. This is a deserted place. You could say a wilderness there. Day is far spent. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. Here's the, uh, here's the response of the disciples to the crowds. Let's get rid of them. <laughs> They're going to need to eat soon, and we don't, want to, we don't want to worry about that. Let them fend for themselves. That's basically what they're saying. And they could. You know, nobody in this crowd is going to starve to death if they don't have a meal in time. I mean, they probably don't have the ample diets that we do, but, but, but they're not going to die if they don't get this meal or if it's deferred for a little while, and, and so they figure, well, that's the best solution. They're still not really aware of who it is they're following. Well, he, he begins to change their thinking by reassessing the circumstance in verse 16. They've looked at the circumstance and seen one thing. Circumstances demand this. Verse 16, Jesus looks at the same circumstances. And since he is not manipulated by circumstances, <laughs> but rather controls circumstances, he has a totally different take on the situation. They think the people need to go away and get food. He says they don't need to go away. They have no need of leaving. And then, what really would have surprised them, I would imagine, he puts the responsibility on them. 
You give them something to eat. And in fact, he, the way he words this in the original language emphasizes the you. We might say, you yourselves give them something to eat. Or if you're writing it out, put the you in bold print or something. You yourselves give them something to eat. There's an echo there of a passage from the Old Testament. The life of the prophet Elisha. In 2 Kings chapter 4, we read, A man came from Belshazzar, bringing the man of God bread of the first fruits. Okay, this, he's bringing an offering as the law prescribes. He's giving that offering to the, the prophet band, figuring that's a good way to direct this offering. Twenty loaves of barley and fresh ears of grain in his sack. And Elisha says, give to the men that they may eat. Very similar to what Jesus is saying to the disciples here. Give them what they need to eat. But his servant says, in effect, Elisha, you forget how many people there are here? We've got a hundred men. I'm going to feed a hundred men with 20 loaves of barley. And these are probably the the small, round, sort of flatbread that's common in the area. How can I set this before a hundred men, Elisha's servant said. And so Elisha repeated, give them to the men that they may eat, for thus says the Lord, that is Yahweh, they shall eat and have some left. So he set it before them, and they ate and had some left, according to the word of the Lord. It would have been nice if one of the disciples, Jesus' words, had triggered a memory for that. And they would have known Jesus is up to something here. <laughs> He's got something in mind. Instead, they're skeptical, right? They're still looking at the circumstances. We have here only five loaves and two fish, which is, in effect, to say, it can't be done. You've asked us to do the impossible. We cannot feed these people. We have just this little meager amount, hardly enough for one man. That, too, brings to mind an Old Testament passage. In fact, one of the Psalms, Psalm 78, in which the psalmist reflects on the actions of the Israelites in the wilderness. God has delivered them from slavery with a series of incredible, miraculous acts that showed him to be the true God and the Egyptian gods to be the false gods. He's destroyed the Egyptian army to get them out of there. And you would think they would then have great faith and confidence in God, and they do not. Psalm 78, verse 10, they did not keep God's covenant promises. Okay, he had pro kept his promises to them. They didn't keep their promises to him, but refused to walk according to his law. They forgot his wonders and the wonders that he had shown them. They forgot all the good things he had done for them. And then he says this, they tested God in their heart by demanding the food they craved. They spoke against God saying, can God spread a table in the wilderness. 
Now, that's really what the disciples are doing here, isn't it? What do you think? We're going to set up a table in the wilderness here for thousands of people? The psalmist goes on to say that the Lord judged Israel for that. That their disbelief brought terrible suffering on them. Jesus is not going to judge at this point. He will one day come as judge, but he has not come as judge here. And so he doesn't condemn them for their lack of faith. Instead, he says, verse 18, I sure love this, bring them here to me. Bring them here to me. Give me what you got. (laughs) Give me what you have. Instead of complaining that you don't have enough, put it in my hands. You ever complain that you don't have enough to do God's will? (laughs) To follow his calling? Maybe you just need to give what you've got to him. In his confidence, I'm reminded of the of one of my favorite narratives in the Old Testament, the narrative of Jonathan and his armor bearer. Philistines are, are, are the dedicated enemies of Israel at that point. Once again, they're threatening. They have a whole garrison full of Philistines that have entered the land. They're on a cliff overlooking a, a ravine. There's only that ravine between them and the Israelite army which is basically terrified. (laughs) They're doing nothing. But I love Jonathan. Jonathan, the the son of Saul, and his armor bearer, go down into that ravine. And so he says to his armor bearer, come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord, that is Yahweh, will work for us For nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Jonathan has his priorities right. He's eager to fight for the Lord. He's eager to fight for the vindication of God's name, to defend his people. So he says to his armor bearer, I can't wait any longer. I've got to fight. Let's fight and put it in the Lord's hands because he can save no matter the odds. That's really what Jonathan is saying. Notice he he doesn't even presume on God the victory, right? He says it may be that Yahweh will work for us, that Yahweh will give us the victory. He's going to fight no matter what. That's the way you're to walk your Christian life. Don't say, I'll do the Lord's will if it turns out well. (laughs) Jonathan and his armor bearer, for all they know, might be walking into their deaths. But they know it's the right thing to do. And they're going to do it. And they have confidence that God can use What in human terms is very little strength. Two men 
only one of them carrying a sword against an enemy. They gave the Lord what they've got. Jesus says, bring here what you've got. And then he decisively takes command of the situation. Verse 19, he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. Literally, he says, he, he orders the crowds to recline on the ground. And that should immediately trigger something in us because these people recline when they eat. So they probably already understand just in hearing that command what's about to happen. They're, they're reclining in preparation for a meal. A table is being prepared. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. And of course here there's a foreshadowing. Foreshadowing of that kingdom meal that God's people were looking forward to at this time. It's even mentioned by some of his enemies as well as Jesus himself. That time when many will come, he says, from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. So he prepares them for the meal. And he takes the five loaves and two fish, looks up to heaven, and blesses the Lord. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. He is once again fulfilling the prophecies of the Old Testament. Psalm 132 says, I will abundantly bless her, that is Zion's provisions. I will satisfy her poor, her poor with bread. And so Jesus provides food for his people. Food for the disciples, food for the crowds. And we're told, verse 20, they all ate and were satisfied and, in fact, had leftovers. They took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over. That number 12 may have stuck in Matthew's mind because, of course, there are 12 tribes and the children of Israel when they came out of Egypt. And so there's a real image here, then, of God providing for his people. Prophets talked about this a lot. Isaiah chapter 25. On this mountain, the Lord, that is Yahweh of hosts, will make for all people a feast of rich food, feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well refined. And we've already mentioned that Jesus speaks of this and this feast in Luke chapter 14. We see it in Revelation 19. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven. And he, John goes on to describe a scene of praise there. And, and here then is this, this song, a voice of a great multitude, like a roar of many waters, like the sound of many, mighty peals of thunder. And one of the things that they're crying out is, the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. 
And the angel tells John to write this message, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. God's people feast in his presence. Why has Jesus performed this miracle? Why is it so significant that the Holy Spirit inspired all four gospel writers to include this miracle? This is the only one of Jesus' miracles that's in all four gospels. Again, these people didn't have to have this food to survive. They're not in a life-threatening situation. Well, you, you've already noticed the basic truth that God is the provider of food and life. And so in this miracle, Jesus is revealed as God, providing food and life to human beings. How can you miss it? And yet everybody does. Why do these crowds not fall down in worship? Why at least don't we see the disciples break into worship here? I mean, the passage almost ends in sort of a... I don't know, it just sort of, there's no climax, it just sort of ends. It's like, it's like Matthew is saying to us, everybody really missed the significance here. They ate, they were satisfied, picked up the leftovers, and it was done. What's most incredible in the event, I think, is what doesn't happen that worship of God that should have happened, that realization that Jesus is revealing himself as God to his people and is worthy of worship. Well, have you, in your heart, responded with worship? Have you, if not physically, have you spiritually fallen at Jesus' feet? before what he has done here. Well, that would be enough to learn, but I'm going to venture to suggest there's something else we, we ought to add to that. What other scripture comes to your mind when you hear the, the expression, God feeding thousands of people in the wilderness? Well, it's obvious, isn't it? It goes back to the Exodus. And in Deuteronomy chapter 8, God himself interprets what he's doing there. He says, this is why I gave you food in the wilderness. And he doesn't say it was so that you could survive. (laughs) I mean, physically that was true. They would have starved to death. But he says that wasn't really the main point, the central point. Here it is. He, that is God, humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor your fathers know, that he might make you to know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. 
There's why I fed you the manna. That's why I fed you in the wilderness. It wasn't merely to sustain your physical life. That wasn't the supreme lesson you were to be gaining out of that experience. You were to understand that your life depends more on my word than it does the food you eat. That's what he's saying there. You should have come out of that experience, he said, knowing that my word was more life-sustaining to you than the food that you eat every day. And we can certainly be for sure <laughs> that that's the lesson because Jesus cites it in his wilderness experience. Remember the, the temptation when, when Jesus has been fasting and he's hungry, and Satan comes to him, and he says, you know, if you're the son of God, you know, why are you going hungry? You can just make these stones into food. You remember what Jesus answered? It is written, it goes right back to that passage in Deuteronomy, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of of God. I'm not going to perform a miracle to gain food for myself. I'm going to depend upon the word of my Father. Why is it true that human beings do not live by bread alone? Why is it that it takes more than material means for you to enjoy life? Is it not because you are more than matter? You're more than your mere physical body. You're made to know life as a creature made in the image of God, that is something more than mere physical existence. The world, the culture that you live in, says this physical existence is what counts. And we can give you what you need to make this physical life satisfying because this is all the satisfaction you're going to get. And so you buy this, you experience that, you check off the marks on this bucket list, and you'll get what you can get out of life. Scripture says you're made for more. You're made not just for physical life, you're made for eternal life in the presence of God. This is the, the interpretation that Jesus makes of his provision for food. In John chapter 6, the people come looking for another handout, another meal. And he says, don't work for the food that perishes. Don't just look for material satisfaction in life. Look for the food that endures to eternal life. And what is that food? They say to him, give us this food that's to eternal life. 
Jesus says to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And he is talking about more than just physical food there, isn't he? Whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the man in the wilderness and they died. That was mere physical existence. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. I have come to offer myself as the spiritual food you need for eternal life. So what are you longing for today? As the morning is passing on, are you longing for something to eat? Are you looking for that the better job, looking for that particular relationship, that particular experience that's going to make life happy here. Uh, I hope you're looking for more. I hope that God has given you a hunger and a thirst for something you can't get here in this present life for something that only he gives. I hope that the words of David in Psalm 63 are yours. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land, where there is no water. David knew what it was to be thirsty and hungry in the wilderness. And he says to God, I'm thirsting for you. I'm hungry for you. And he goes on to anticipate that prayer being answered. Because he says, so I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you, your right hand upholds me. Whet your appetite for Christ. Long, long for that joy, that satisfaction that that union with him by faith brings and you will not be disappointed. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this reminder that 
that you purpose so much more for us than mere physical existence and material well-being. That you purpose for your people nothing less than forgiveness of their sins and eternal life in your presence. Help us, Lord, to be shaped by that understanding and that expectation. Help, help us to make decisions from day to day this week in light of the promises of your kingdom. Uh, may the longings of our heart be for you and whatever it is that we're doing. And, and we believe that you will sustain us and encourage us in that. And regardless of our physical circumstances, that you will enable us to persevere in faith and know the joy of your presence. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.